Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When we... Came back here and got off the plane, I felt like the Pope. I almost got down and kissed the tarmac at the airport here. Ivor Alexander is a long-time local of Nullumboy. He's originally from Scotland, but he moved to Australia as a young boy. In this episode, you'll hear about Ivor's childhood, his time in the military, becoming a male nurse back in the 70s, meeting his lovely wife, Linda and the story of how they came up to northeast Arnhem Land, expecting to stay for a few years and why they never left. Whether you live in this region or if you're listening in from another part of the world, Iva's story is truly, truly fascinating. So, without further ado, sit back, relax and enjoy this week's episode of Northeast Arnhem Land with Mont. Now, just to get things rolling, a little bit of housekeeping. First up, thank you so much for clicking on this podcast. My name's Monica O'Hanlon, and you could say I'm a bit of a sticky beak. I just love hearing people's stories because it's true what they say. Everyone's got one. I work at Gove FM in northeast Arnhem Land in the NT. It's one of the most remote and unspoilt parts of Australia. If you're someone who isn't familiar with it, here's what you need to know. The Yungle people are the traditional owners of this region. Their vibrant culture dates back more than 50,000 years. The hub where I live is called Nullumboy, a town created on the Gove Peninsula after the establishment of the bauxite mine. You're probably asking, what's the purpose of this podcast? I've met so many weird and wonderful people whether they're from here or just passing through, I want to know how their path led them to this tiny little dot on the map. And it would be my absolute pleasure to share it with you. Let's start from the beginning. Ivor, where were you born? Edinburgh, Scotland. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. uh, Very interesting then. I was the youngest of four kids. Yeah, when we came to Australia in 49, food rationing was still in place in Britain. It was incredible to think that when we landed, we came out by ship, landed in Port Melbourne and met by a huge clan of family and friends and, you know, I had two great aunts who'd been in Australia since 1927. They were the ones that convinced us to migrate to Australia because we were also looking at... uh, the US and Canada, because my father had spent two years there during the war. Okay. Um, prior to America coming into the war, he was based in Canada, and then when America came in after Pearl Harbor, um, he then moved down to San Francisco, and they were, take, they were up taking uh, aircraft carriers and fighter planes from the Americans on a Lee Slynn program. Oh, wow. So he was there for about a year while they trained up the pilots to land and 
take off from aircraft carriers and then move down to the Pacific. So that sort of had a, a strong influence. Will we go to Canada or the States? And then when they looked at the bigger picture, we were better off to come to Australia, and thank God they did. But when we arrived at Port Melbourne the following day, the big extended family mob took us to the Victoria markets. We could not believe <laughs> the fruit and the food that was available because we didn't see anything at all like that as little kids. Wow. You'd be lucky to see an orange, for goodness sakes. Wow. So how old were you when you got here? Four. Four. So yep. do you remember your childhood much in Edinburgh? Um, yeah, a couple of things stood out. I, I remembered a couple of things that my older sister said, no, it can't be true okay. because they didn't remember it. Okay. Like a particular swimming pool sliding down what was called White Hill in the snow and we were too poor to afford a sled or skis or anything. So we used to ride on a coal shovel and use the handle as a steering <laughs> rod. And, uh, yeah, some things do stick out. Yeah. Um, but the cold was a, was a big thing. We'd been evacuated from where we had lived due to the war and so we were living in tenement flats absolutely freezing in winter and absolutely boiling when you got a really big heat surge which did happen back then every now and again but I can remember looking out the second floor window at snow over a metre you'd call it now deep and no school because you couldn't walk through the snow to get to school or well I was in kindy but, uh, yeah, that was all put on hold until the thaw. So it was <clears throat> very interesting to come to a place like Australia with the weather. Yeah, so what, what was your <clears throat> childhood like growing up in Australia coming from Scotland? Yeah, looking back, at, we lived two years in Coburg in Melbourne um, ah. and right on Sydney Road, which was pretty busy. I think at that stage we were told it was the busiest highway in Australia, which would probably be true. Yeah, I actually, we lived in Coburg last year, just off Sydney Road on Walsh, Walsh Street. Right. Do you remember right. that one? No, <laughs> I'd, I'd remember it if I walked it again, because I've been back a few times to walk down to uh, the lake, at the Coburg Lake. lake. Yeah, I think it was the Merry, the Merry Creek used to feed it. And I can remember a shock there one day when a group of, I think they were Germans, if I remember correctly, uh, was sitting on the grass there and one of them swam across the lake and got halfway back and then disappeared and they weren't really good swimmers anyway and they didn't know about the CPR in those days was unheard of like we know it now but they used to lay a person down on a slope which was on a slope with the grass um, and try and drain them by lifting their arms and getting the water out of their lungs but he started to go blue and that's when the adults shoot us all away because all, all us kids were watching. We'd heard about people who could swim properly and the danger of drowning. Um, but this was, yeah, this was right in our faces. We must have been about five-year-old, I think. Oh, my God. I didn't <coughs> even think that the Coburg Lake was that deep. That's horrific. Yeah, it must have been a big runoff from the Mary Creek somewhere because, yeah, it was deep enough to drown in. Oh, yeah. And you don't, he didn't survive? Or? no. No. Oh, that's awful. But he wasn't a local, so, you know, we didn't know who he was. Yeah. But that was right under the uh, walls of Pentridge Prison. You could look across and see the guards in the towers there. Oh, because it would have still been running then, too. It was, it was. And one of my schoolmates, his dad was a chief divisional warder of H Division, which was nicknamed Hell Division. It was the toughest. 
uh, and they actually lived in the married quarters in the middle of Pentridge Prison. There was about 30 or 40 houses for the staff. And uh, so I used to go through the front gate of Pentridge Prison sometimes with young Johnny Burke um, and go to his place after school. His mum would have been working, so I'd go over there till, you know, five o'clock or whatever. Um, and walking through that part of the prison that was highly restricted, so you'd come up to a wall with an iron gate in it and a guard up on the wall in the watchtower, and he'd see who it was, so we'd just wave and... He'd pull the lever and open the gate and you walk through and I'd go to crash shut behind you. And uh, I was told I wasn't to talk about anything and don't talk to anybody. And we <clears throat> came into one enclosed yard um, where there was a big, huge veggie garden and there was only one man in there and Johnny... I can still remember Johnny saying, don't look at him, don't look at him, don't say anything, don't say anything, he won't talk to you, don't look at him, don't look at him. He had on a pair of shorts, so it must have been summer because he had nothing else on, oh, a pair of boots, um, and he was tattooed from head to foot, totally, and he was called the Tattooed Man. He was a serial killer, and he was confined to that veggie garden that he grew and his own cell, and he was not to have any contact with any other prisoners. And they let you in there with him? Just to walk through, because we had to walk through <laughs> his yard to get to get to Johnny Burke's house. So Different it, times, hey? Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, and uh, the last woman to be hung in Victoria was at that time too and uh, was due to be at 8 o'clock and the bell started slow tolling at the Pentridge so everybody just stopped. Yeah, even the traffic, it had just all stopped because there were huge protests about this hanging and, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, and... Uh, we were late for school because the access to the Pentridge was restricted and so Johnny had difficulty getting, even getting out the main gate that day for me to meet him and walk to school. So we had to go down to Bell Street between, yeah, where there was a, a, a southerly gate and they had to let him out there. So he's, he's signalling to the, the guard up on the wall to tell me, yelling out. And a lot of people standing around there waiting for this dreadful episode, um, thought that he was yelling at me and telling me to move on, as though I was a troublemaker. I said, no, it's all right, I'm just waiting for my mate, and they didn't like that. Anyway, interesting days, and then we were late for school, so we told everybody, including the teacher, that we we were late because we climbed up on the wall to watch this woman get hung. <laughs> <laughs> they believed us initially, <laughs> called us horrors and everything, and then I realised, of course, no, it wasn't wasn't done in the open. <laughs> so that was one of our stories. Yeah, interesting times, though. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. So what was school like? Because you've talked about some pretty dark things so far. Was it a happy childhood, would you say? Uh, or? I, I thought it was. The interesting thing looking back, and we didn't think much of it at the time, but there was this huge migration to Australia from Europe with a lot of what were called DPs, displaced persons who had nowhere else to go in the world because their countries and their towns and families in some cases just totally disappeared. And so the, it was a real mixed bag of nationalities at that primary school. It was incredible looking back. There were Hungarians, Poles, Italians, Greeks, Scots... English, Irish, it was just... So we had multiculture growing up in primary school and people are you know, raving about it these days, but it was alive and well when I was a little one.
Yeah, had uh, Hungarian friends who taught me how to handline fish because that wasn't a done thing in Australia. That's so you either had a fishing rod or not, but of course they couldn't afford rods back in their country. Um, so yeah, taught me to handline fish and used to go out after redfin and cook them up for lunch. And uh, that was interesting because their mother didn't speak English and they had this big, huge cast iron pot of this black coffee. It was like tar hanging over the fire all day. And any time anybody wanted a coffee, you just scooped it up. And uh, I tasted it and I thought, oh, God, I couldn't drink this. And because uh, we hadn't grown up on coffee. Yeah. It was tea. And um, I said to my mate, John, I couldn't get a cup of tea. He translated that into Hungarian and she jumped up and raced around and put her hand on my forehead. Was, was I all right? Did I have a fever? <laughs> because in their country, they drink tea as a herbal thing and you only drink that when you're unwell. Otherwise, it's just this black, <laughs> black tar. Yeah, yeah, so interesting background. So we, we, had, we already had a multicultural focus growing up in those days, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm. W- what did you do for fun? So you said fishing and you learned how to handline fish off your mates from Hungary. Uh, what else did you do? Uh, footy, footy was big yeah, around Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. Um, and about two, three doors along from us was a local Coburg fire station that still had the old dongers and the brass helmets, and that it had this um, huge tower out the back that had a bell on it that they'd ring if there was a fire. But it was also where they used to winch their hoses up after a fire to dry the hoses out before they rolled them, otherwise they'd rot old canvas things. So we were very naughty. We used to climb up that tower. And if the parents had have known, they would have had a blue fit. I mean, looking back, I don't know what is in, in the new one, but it would have been 35, 40 foot high. Oh and we'd climb up and lay up on the top platform and spy on all the neighbours and things like that. But we used to play in the forecourt of the fire station with a football, which was quite dangerous on Sydney Road. And I kicked and it ricocheted off the front wall of the fire station out onto the road. And Johnny Burke, without looking, ran out. And he got picked up by a truck. <laughs> Bang. Thrown through the air. And I can still remember his teeth flying out. You could see, <laughs> we were that close. Could have been any of us. And there's a teeth flying out of his mouth. He got his, like, lost his front teeth. Thank goodness they were his milk teeth. So, you know. He was all right. Yeah, and believe it or not, yeah, they picked him up and carried him back onto the footpath and looking around for an ambulance and stuff and a couple of the fireys came out and looked at him and he was okay. But I can't believe that he got hit so severely and, and he was back at school in a couple of days. And of course, it was my fault because I'd kicked the football. <laughs> Were uh, you and Johnny Burke friends after that? or? Oh, yeah. In fact, I bumped him in a country Victorian town... Uh, about 20 years later. Ah. He was a motorbike cop. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Crazy. So you mentioned before that your dad was in the military. Mm-hmm. Is that how you got into it or how, how did you end up going down that path? A long line of people who've served, yeah. Uh, some of it interesting, some of it a bit dark. Um, we grew up in our family with a story that Dad told. His dad wasn't a very nice person, and so he was actually raised by his grandmother in a separate house. So my father 
growing up with his grandmother, the thing that got them through, and they were a little fractionally better than most other family members or even neighbours, was her husband had gone and joined the Union Army in America and fought in the American Civil War on the Union side. And once a month, what was called a money order, used to arrive in the mail, US government, and that was his pension because he'd since died. Uh, and so Grandma used to give the post the money order to my dad to go down to the post office and cash it. And we can't even remember how much it was. It may have only been something like maybe five dollars. I don't know. We can't remember. And not only that, we didn't get his service details. And when my parents went back to a six-month visit to Canada and the US in later years, I was kicking them afterwards. Why didn't you go and trace his service record? You know, we had no idea yeah. what his unit was. Um, but that's what got them through all those really tough years. Um, and things were tough. They, I'm pretty sure they all lived hand-to-mouth. So that was one military connection. Then my mother's father got killed in Belgium in First World War when she was only three years of age, and that was really tough. <clears throat> I found out later on when one of my cousins did a, an extensive family history, including visiting graveyards in Scotland and Ireland, because my mother's family were Irish descent. Her maiden name was Duffy. I found out that um, four of his brothers and a brother-in-law had all died in World War I, and nobody had spoken about it. It was all just hush-hush. You never referred to it. Um, and I've got siblings and or cousins who've been back and discovered all of their graves, and there was another brother that we lost track of, and nobody had a clue where he was, and his name was Michael. So great-uncle Michael, we just didn't know where he was and it was only about 10 or 12 years ago one of my cousins discovered he's actually buried in Iraq where he was stationed with the Arab legions in World War One. So, yeah, there was this whole family connection and my mother's brother, Raf, British Raf, World War Two. Um, so there's always been... Oh, and there was another weird one. Don't know his name because he was never, ever referred to again, but he fought in the Napoleonic Wars against Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's probable that it was one of the... Uh, yeah, it would have been a Scottish regiment, uh, kilts and bagpipes. And so... Um, but when he came back from what were called the Napoleonic Wars, uh, he brought a Spanish wife back with him. Oh, shame and scandal in the family and neither he nor her were ever discussed again. The whole family just cut them off and we can't even remember his name. So what year was that? What year is the Napoleon... How do you, what is it, the Napoleonic War? Yeah, uh, oh, about 1812 or so. Okay. So he would have been five generations back. Wow. Yeah. What a strange time! <laughs> strange, strange time. Yeah. So, was were your family um, supportive of your choice to to go into the army then, or? Yeah, I think they're a bit surprised actually. Um, what had happened? I joined the CMF, which is equivalent then Citizen Military Forces, like Norforce. Okay. You did part time. 
yeah, parade once a week. A uh, couple of weekend camps and bivouacs and rifle aim, uh, range shooting, and then a two-week annual camp. And so I did that for two years and loved it, and that's when I thought, I'm in for this. Um, and so I joined the regular army. And what, what year was that? Uh, 67. And then, so the Vietnam War? 64 to about 72. So you knew what you were signing up for, essentially? Oh, yeah. 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 And so you you did serve in the Vietnam War, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. How many years did you? One year. One year. I was due to go back for a second tour when Labor won the federal election, Gough Whitlam, and he pulled it all out. Although they'd already started coming home earlier anyway. But, uh, yeah, that was that was the final straw, I think, and because the government decided that was it, so all the Aussies out in 72 in a hurry. And I looked at it and I thought, yeah, it's, this is not going to go anywhere. So, yeah, I did my six years and then left, but signed on for five years on the emergency reserve meaning and you got a bonus for that but what it meant was if the during the next five years if there was another outbreak of something and they needed you you'd be straight back in with your uh, rank and military level standing because i was mills mill skill six um which was the highest you could get in infantry and uh so you'd go back in at your present rating and rank blah blah okay. blah uh at, at their pleasure, you know, yeah. and, and nobody knew what was going to happen post-Vietnam. But I'm sorry I didn't get back there for a second tour, believe it or not, and a lot of people raised eyebrows at me, but uh, yeah, I was going to go back and be part of a training team, which would have been quite different to working with a uh, full-strength Australian unit per se, although you'd still be Australian, but yeah, yeah out, out actually with the South Vietnamese units. Um, Yes, I'm sorry that didn't happen, but it didn't. And then I actually was in the infantry corps, but they were extremely short of medics. And in the CMF that I'd been in, I'd actually passed, I say, John Ambulance first aid and done a bit more on top of that as well because the other family connection was my mum was a nurse and one of my sisters was a nurse. So I sort of... And they nudged me and said, look, would you like to go and do this course to be a sort of equivalent of what you'd call an infantry medic now, combat medic, um, by the Americans. Um, and so, yeah, I went off to two general hospital, a military hospital, and then one field hygiene company and passed this course to go, and although infantry corps, but act as a medic, if you like, a stretcher bearer, they called them. Okay. Um, and so... When I came back from Vietnam and I saw a lot of stuff, and I'm not going to go into that. That's all right. Um, but saw a lot of stuff, did a lot of stuff, um, and my sister said to me, what are you going to do now? I said, I don't know. I was a bit of a loose end. I don't know, really. And after she heard my stories, and I never told the rest of the family or even my mates or anything, she said, if you don't go nursing, you're mad. And so I was approached by army to say we'll put you through your general nurse training uh, and you'd retain your present rank and pay which was huge compared to what a little student nurse was getting 
and then you come back after that and give us five years as a commissioned officer, uh, registered nurse. And I looked at it and I thought, no, because males in those days in nursing, they were a very small minority. Oh, really? Very, yeah. And a lot of the older nurses and even some of the doctors had difficulty with these, like, what do you call them, sister? Hello, sister. So <laughs> <laughs> so we'd have to be mister. Um, and even that caused some angst. Okay. Uh, and then I looked at it and I thought, no, if I did that through defence and then spent five years at a military hospital, you'd be dealing with super fit, otherwise healthy young blokes who might have appendicitis or a broken leg on exercises or, you know, or something like that or a motor vehicle accident. You wouldn't even get a post to Singapore, which Australian nurses were being posted to at the time. Wouldn't even get that. Uh, or Malaysia, as was, Malaya. Because you didn't have midwifery, and I didn't want to do midwifery. And so I said thanks, but no thanks. So I went in as a little student nurse, which was quite interesting because there was, we were one of the largest groups to start at the Royal Brisbane. Um, I think if I remember rightly, there were about 94 of us or 96 of us in one intake, which was so big they had to split us into two separate groups. <laughs> and there were 12 males out of that group. So they put males six in one group and six in the other, just like that. <laughs> your, that your, you were in 13B and the other ones were 13A or something. <clears throat> but interesting times because a lot of the older sisters with their big, huge veils and their power capes and <laughs> stuff they used to wear back then and brightly polished shoes, unless they were a senior nurse and then they'd have white shoes and it was incredible. So it was ex very strict hierarchy. If, if a registered nurse walked into your, where you were working or sitting down at a desk or doing whatever, you would immediately stand up. Really? Oh, yeah. And hands behind your back. Don't you wave your wings at me. <laughs> Put your hands, be hands behind your back. And uh, you, you see, that suited me fine because I'd been a soldier. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect so for I'd, you. <laughs> so I used to exaggerate it. I'd slam to attention <laughs> and address them as ma'am, uh, which nowadays is probably only reserved for the Queen. Nobody else... And I was the, I found out after I was the only one who got away with calling the senior matron of the Royal Brisbane Hospital ma'am when I addressed her. Any of her junior RNs who tried that on, she stripped them. Really? Don't you speak to me like that. I'm not the Queen. <laughs> I got away with it because she knew I'd been in the Army. And I was used to addressing female officers as ma'am. Okay. So um, how, how um, old were you when you started as a nursing student? Um, now I'm counting. Was I 31? 28. 28. 28, okay. Mm. Um, so I was a lot older than a lot of the younger ones. A lot of the other ones were a few years younger than me, and they were some of them 18. Fresh years out old. of high school, kind Yeah, of fresh thing. out of year 12. Um, so, yeah, I was a bit of a granddad. <laughs> it was interesting because looking back, I can well remember a couple of times I got this granddad approach from the 17, 18 year old female nurses and or the blokes as well. Hey, look, Ivor, this has happened. What do you reckon? And it was interesting. You almost started playing counsel or social worker at that age. <laughs> I don't mind giving advice. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you feel important. But uh, yeah, interesting times. 
got spoilt rotten at one stage. I did a stint as a tutor in a school of nursing in psychiatry. And then I got spoiled rotten three and a half years in an adolescent unit for adolescent psych. And we took kids from 11 to 17 with a huge range of problems. Uh, Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Some schizophrenia, uh, anorexia nervosas, uh, borderline personality disorders, um, a whole range of stuff. But the team was quite interesting. It was the first one, I believe, in the whole of Queensland. <clears throat> Not going to name it. And in that team was a psychiatrist, senior psychiatrist in charge with a couple of doctors under him who were studying their psych to become psychiatrists. Uh, had about 24 RNs three deputy charge nurses, one charge nurse and one nurse supervisor. So there were nurses from general and psych trained in that unit. And we didn't wear uniforms, whereas the rest of the hospital was still on this old, rigid <laughs> psychiatric model that, you know, you turned out with your shoes spit polished and your, <laughs> and your uniform on. And, uh, yeah, they were very old school and they, they had not trained in general training or midwifery usually, only psych. So they were pretty stiff in what they did. Mm. Uh, very little flexibility. Just, we've been doing this for 50 years and this is the way it is, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And the, and the model that it was based on was called the therapeutic community where the kids had a lot of say in how the unit conducted itself. They didn't interfere with us professionally, but. Every morning we had a meeting of all the staff that were available at that time at 8 and then at 8.30 the kids would all then come into the meeting and all sit around in this meeting room and we'd take feedback from them about what was happening and Aww. how things should be and uh, we've got a weekend coming up, what do we want to do for an excursion and they'd put their bids in or put their hand up um, and the ones who were sort of responding to treatment and we only had about the first two weeks to decide if we could work with them or not because some kids we couldn't find one person on the team that could meld with this kid with their disturbances and help them so you had two assigned to them there was a, a case manager but also like a, a counsellor one-on-one and they were two different roles you didn't cross over. The councillor didn't talk to the case manager and vice versa, and that was quite deliberate. One of the things we learned very quickly in psych, which was drummed into us by the tutors, don't go and read the chart. I thought, what? Because that's what you do in general. Yeah. You know, in a general ward setting or a midwifery setting or that, you go and read the chart to find out about the patient. No, no. If you read the chart, that will influence your perceptions and assessment. 
go and talk to the patient. They will tell you if you talk, you know, if you ask them correctly. And when you first started, you had 40 minutes to do an assessment. Then it was expected that over a few weeks or months when you're getting more practice at this, you can get it down to 20 minutes and sometimes less to do an assessment. Is this person mad, bad or sad? And we had not a setting for the ones that were bad and there were um, some who really belonged in a, in a custodial setting, not a therapeutic community because they would also disrupt the other kids. Mm. Um, so that was enormously interesting. So got sport rotten. With, with an incredible team and didn't want to leave. But we had friends who came up here. So, sorry, how did Linda get into the picture? What was the, what's the story of the meeting there? <laughs> um, Fairy tale? Yeah, yeah. First time around we met, uh, I was second year. Yeah. And she was a little student who was doing her first six months probationary. They used to call them butter boxes because that were the funny little caps that they wore. Looked like those old glass butter butter dishes. <laughs> yeah? yeah, so they were called butter boxes. <laughs> and uh, she didn't say anything at the time, but it transpired that her and Penny were absolutely petrified of me. <laughs> never said a, never said anything like that, but they really were. Oh, look out! Here Why? We, I probably still had this bearing and voice from. Ah, oh, from the military. Yeah, yeah, I think that was part of it. Um, so we were at that hospital and I left and went around Australia for two years in my own old bus, converted to a mobile home, an old cool. Brisbane City Council bus. <laughs> Even had a bathtub and a shower, flushing toilet. It was pretty flash for those days. Yeah. But it was a, rat, <laughs> a rattly old heap. Um, so went around Australia for two years and when I came back I was nudged that they were a bit short-staffed at the new hospital, at their old hospital, it had been a very small private hospital, which was an old pub, believe it or not. And so the new, brand new hospital over the river was huge and blah, blah, blah. Hey, we're a bit short, you couldn't come and help us out. So I did that just around about Christmas time and, uh, <clears throat> and stayed on. So as time went by, uh, yeah, <laughs> Linda, Linda had graduated by then and we sort of bumped into each other again, but it was nothing. <laughs> we, Cute. We, we, we used to have this night shift supervisor. She was absolutely unbelievable. No names, no pack drill. Absolutely unbelievable, this woman. Um, she'd ring the front door of the hospital, the bell, because it was locked up at nine o'clock and so she's coming on about 10.30, take over the night shift. Everybody was petrified of her, even some of the big boys from day shift. Um, she'd ring the doorbell and she'd be out there with a fag in her face, getting rid of that. False teeth in her pocket, veil in the other hand or stuck under her wing, and her lippy. And she's trying to organise all this as she comes through the front door. And apparently on night shift one night she said to Linda, this is quaint, I love the way the language used to get, be used. I believe you're stepping out with Mr. Alexander. <laughs> <laughs> and Linda said, uh, yes, she said, oh, good. Stood up and walked away. But she was really something. She really... <laughs> <laughs> so you met Linda. 
you had a <laughs> an interesting me. I think that's a really cute story that you kind of had met and then years late, a couple of years later, kind of sealed the deal there. Going back to what you were saying, you had some friends that were working up here or in Groot. Were they in Groot? Yeah, Groot Island. Groot Island. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Keith was in charge of the clinic at a Nuragu clinic, uh, a community, and Penny was 2RC of Alyangula Clinic. Ah. But they lived on the community at a Nuragu uh, in the, what was called the River House. Uh, it was like a little low-set Queensland, very quaint. Uh, and they kept writing letters because in those days it was snail mail. There were no emails. This is paradise. You've got to come up, got to come up. Anyway, pushed and pushed and pushed. So we contacted the executive director of nursing here at the time and she sniffed around and then I found out she'd actually gone to my bosses at the adolescent <laughs> unit I was working at. And that's fine. I, sometimes that doesn't happen these days and people aren't vetted very well. Mm. But by geez, back then they were. <laughs> um, so she got some feedback and then she said, has Linda worked? Or said to Linda, have you worked remote? And she said, no, and I had. And that's when she said, well, you're a couple, obviously, together. Oh, yeah, we're married. Um, and so she said, come to Gove District Hospital for a year. And it was like, we'll have a look at you and you'll have a look at us, right? And and that's good. That's the way it should be. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, so I resigned this wonderful job I had in Brisbane and Linda had had a couple of very important appointments, but she said, no, I've, I want to get out. Okay. So we packed up the car and the trailer and drove to Darwin and they barged the car and the trailer over here while we flew over. So we came here for a year, 32 years worth. <laughs> what was your first impression of um, this region like? First impression was interesting. We got picked up at the airport by a lady from the hospital in the hospital courier bus that they had then. There were no regular bus runs apart from the mine and the plant where, you know, the workers' buses used to pick them up. Mm. Uh, change the roster times. Um, and, yes, yeah, she was trying to explain to me what we were in for. <laughs> Let's say that the accommodation that was on offer that first day was not quite what we'd expected. <laughs> uh, one of the other interesting things when we first came here was the hose patrol, and you would be too young, it would have finished. Patrol, yeah. When they had very strict uh, regulations about the sprinkler times, and I think if I remember correctly, I think it was four to eight or five till nine or something, and it was strictly enforced. But this is 32 years ago. Oh, okay. Um, and that was strictly enforced and they had this hose patrol that would drive around and you wouldn't get away with it now with the Ockelton safety but it was a ute with a driver and two blokes sitting in the back of the ute with machetes and they would drive around and if they saw a sprinkler on before the allocated time, right, they'd just jump over the fence and chop the hose and then jump back on the ute and speed off. What? Yep, that was the hose patrol. Now there will be people who will, <coughs> pardon me, totally deny that. <laughs> but it's true because we saw it happen to a neighbour of ours. <laughs> and they didn't care if your government department or mine or if you were breaking the hose regs, the hose patrol would come and pay your visit. <laughs> I hope they at least uh, turned the turned tap the, off. Turned the tap off. And then and just destroyed your hose. <laughs> well, it, it did, did come to a bit of an argument at one stage because one person had a rather large dog. A oh. big deep. 
<laughs> and so it got to the stage where it was really deemed to be a, an ock health and safety problem. But there were, there were more race norms, there were, there were norms there that made sense, that have gone. Uh, and one of them was domestic noise on weekends or public holidays. Mm -hmm. And I've heard varying times, some people said it used to be nine o'clock. I spoke to people who've said it's 11 o'clock. But I distinctly remember when we were here, it was 10. That on weekends and public holidays, you didn't mow, hammer, whip a snip, well, no, whip a snip is no days. Um, there was a whole range of things that you did not create noise on weekends or public holidays before that 10 a.m. Yeah. Because that's just the way it was. And, of course, that, that's been whittled away over the years. Yeah, I feel like that's a thing in Australia that's changed a bit. Because my grandpa's from Switzerland and he's still like, on a Sunday you are not allowed to mow the lawn at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, it's funny how Australia must have had it and now it's... Kind of, that's when you do the lawn now, right? Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it started to disappear with all of the extra traffic and noise with the G3 with Alcan after. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure because there was so much racket going on at that stage with construction and, and a whole <laughs> lot of other stuff that that, yeah, 10 a.m. thing disappeared, unfortunately. But anyway. <clears throat> <laughs> Going back, so you've been you came here for one year, and you you've been here for thirty two now, thirty two yeah. or thirty two. Yeah, yeah. You must love it. You guys must absolutely love it, right? When we went out on what was called a foil, we used to have flight out of isolated localities, right? And you were entitled to a foil after you've been here for a few months. So we sneaked back down to Brisbane and visited Linda's family. And then when we came back here and got off the plane, I felt like the Pope. I almost got down and kissed the tarmac at the airport here. We didn't realise how bad the poor old Brizzy had become since the Commonwealth Games, where it went from a reasonably small, sleepy country town to this concrete jungle. And it wasn't just the traffic... Yeah, there was a whole lot of other stuff. The house we had in Brisbane that we sold after we came up here, there was a bloke stabbed to death outside what had been our bedroom window in that house, uh, yeah, one Saturday night. Oh. Yeah, we, we had forgotten how bad it was compared to here because here, this town, it wasn't stifling, but there was a certain standard of social behaviour in this town that was pretty well observed. I mean, there would be a few odd ones that didn't, mm -hmm. but, but generally speaking. And that was also when Nabalka had its own security unit and if there was a bit of a shortfall here with law enforcement or anything, because this is a leased site and they're the landlords, uh, <clears throat> they would second some of their security to back up the locals. Um, they even had their own fire brigade at that stage. We didn't have a fire station here in town. Oh. So it was a mining company, fire trucks. Yeah, there was a whole lot of things that were different. One of the quaint things was that because uh, the mine company actually owns the road from the wharf to the airport, once a year, you might remember this actually, once a year, they'd close that road with a little boom gate. Yeah. 
and I could still remember, and I almost said his name, the bloke, <laughs> the bloke who used to man it. He had his table, chair, comfy chair, sun umbrella, big hat, water bottle, esky alongside him, and he would have that boom gate closed and you drove up to it and he'd note, note, yeah, blah, and lift the boom gate and you'd drive through. And they did it for one day in daylight hours, once a year. <clears throat> because under common law, they had to do that, very old English, <laughs> to say that we own this road. Yeah, right. And that's disappeared. So I don't know why it's disappeared. What did somebody in an office sitting somewhere else say? Oh, this is, you know. Pointless. <laughs> but it, but it, was, it was really something you could take photographs of that and send it to other people outside. Hey, yeah, look at this for a town. <laughs> it was really good. It's cute. Uh, do we love this town? Love it. <laughs> you love, love it. it. <laughs> we we raised, raised our kids here. You've got twins, Callum and Lockie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and and they're different in themselves. I'll blow this out in the open and I don't mind embarrassing them at all. <laughs> but they're not just identical twins, they're actually mirror image twins, which are rarer again. What's mirror image twins? Uh, Lachlan's right-handed, right-footed, and Callum's left-handed, left-footed. Oh, my gosh. And they're, yeah. are they're identical? Yeah. Oh, oh what What happens is with... with can I talk twinning for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. What happens is that in identical twins, a single egg splits, mm -hmm. but that's in the first week of conception. If that egg doesn't split until the second week of conception, they will be mirror image, <laughs> meaning that if Callum had have had a birthmark on his left shoulder, Lachlan would have had it on his right shoulder. What? Huh? No, true. And so if they don't, if the egg doesn't split until after that, that's when you get the tragic presentation of what's called Siamese twins uh, or okay. conjoined. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a bit of the, the background to why twinning occurs. Lachlan and Callum were asked by a friend of ours once upon a time who was in uh, Lionesses here and then Lions, uh, if they could, because she adored them. She thought they were wonderful. They're only little tackers. They are wonderful. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> How much did they pay you to say that? <laughs> um, so she asked if they could go with her on the Clean Up Australia Day, which was really big back in those days. One of our predecessors could remember when they, the mining company put on 10 trucks here in this town and they collected 10 truck loads of rubbish on Clean Up Australia Day. Wow. And that included all the beaches, the amount of stuff they collect. Anyway, she said, could they come with me uh, on Clean Up Australia Day? And I said, all right, because there were going to be a few kids that accompanied their parents and as long as they had enclosed shoes and got the gloves and the goggles and the blah, 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 and the bags. And uh, so they did so well with the clean up around the top end, around the uh, Captain Cook shopping centre area, that she rewarded them with a soft drink and an ice cream or something. So they're sitting on little tables and chairs outside the cafe up there and uh, Lockie fell sideways off the chair when he went to move his drink and he opened up alongside his eye and she panicked, of course, no mobiles in those days, yelled to the cafe staff to say, I'm taking the hospital quick, could you ring the parents and let them know? So that all happened. So we 
scuffed off to the hospital and sure enough they needed us because she couldn't give permission for what needed to be done because he had to be sutured. So um, he's in the treatment room in ED and Callum's in the staff tea room with us. We're having a brew. And all of a sudden, Callum grabbed his head. Oh! That was them putting the local into Lockie, the local anaesthetic, which is a bit stingy, or what? used to be. Uh, yeah, and that, and that was... So, we saw so many instances of this that it was amazing. Anyway, there's Lockie with his brand new scar alongside his eye, right? Two nights later, Callum slipped in the shower recess and opened up, guess what? <laughs> alongside on the opposite side. Just, <laughs> what? Yeah, so they both finished up with a scar. And we didn't know until, or Mum didn't know, <laughs> until only about the last year or two that they've got this little patch where hair doesn't grow because they've both got beard there. <laughs> And they both got, but they said, but mum, you must have noticed we've never had that. Oh, yeah, these, oh, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Both got the same little patch <laughs> where there's no hair growing. It's weird. And, <laughs> and those people, there's still a lot of scientists who will not admit that things like this happen, even though the evidence is right in front of them. Uh, even some people within the Australian Twin Foundation who follow them for life, if you give permission. <laughs> they'll contact them every 10 years and see what's what. That's insane. Oh, it... it <laughs> <laughs> one, one would be asleep still from an afternoon nap in their cot up the passageway behind two closed doors, right? Mm. And the other one's laying on the sheepskin rug on the floor in the lounge. And all of a sudden they go... And they startle alert up and and roll over and look around and that, you know the other one's woken up and yet you would not be able to hear them. I guess um, we've had a we've had a long chat about your life, about what's happened already, but what are your hopes and dreams for the future? Oh I'd like to see a revitalisation of a strong RSL with a new venue uh, secured. Um, and I know that that's a big ask, but we are really trying to give back to the community. This community had been so good to us. We used to say to people that were outside of here or people who were new here that this was probably one of the, probably one of the safest towns in the whole of Australia. It would be not unusual to hear a mum, and this is going back a while, but, but hear a baby crying. You know, one o'clock in the morning or 11 o'clock at night, what in the heck, what's going on with the baby? Mm. You'd get up and look out and there'd be a mum with a baby that wasn't settling and she'd be strolling around town with it in Australia because Dad's on 12 on, you know, 12 on, 12 Crazy off, 12 on. Yeah. And, you know, he really needs to sleep. People forgot that mums are exhausted. You know, that didn't come into the conversation. <laughs> but, um, yeah, walking around town trying to settle a crying baby, you couldn't do that in you know, 99% of the other places in yeah. Australia. And it was one of the safest towns which we promoted. We thought that was great. Um, changed a little bit, but still a lot better than most other places, I think. Um, 
people who say there's nothing to do in this town, by God, they must be boring people. <laughs> it's incredible to think that out of all of the things, there's probably uh, there used to be in a, in a booklet that, that was here. Um, there used to be almost fifty different clubs and organisations, and that yeah, that included sporting clubs as well and everything. But you know, guitar lesson clubs and stamp collecting clubs and musical clubs and you know, there's a lot to do here. Uh, some people say to us, gee, the noise of the speedway on Saturday night must be a bit much for you up there at South, and we say, it's fantastic. You've got mums and dads and kids out there having a great time, and that's what's needed. They need to be able to do something when, if they have got any spare time. <laughs> a lot of busy people in this community. Yeah. Um, now, that'd be one of the things I'd like to see in the future. God, what would be the other? Oh, the other one would be a peaceful death. Yes, please. I don't want to get all excitable about. <laughs> <laughs> because... Took a dark turn. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, that's the way it is. Because people come up to us because Linda's still working and I've retired. Although I'm still lecturing with the students at Flinders University here, adjunct lecturer. I'd still. Yeah, people coming up to. You're not leaving, are you? You know, some of the old timers. You're not leaving, are you? No, no, we're here. We bought a house. We're staying. Oh, that's good. Are you sure you're staying? And I said, look, I've told Linda she can bury me here. <laughs> and she looks at me and says, and if you don't shape up, it might be sooner than you think. <laughs> no, I, I, I just look for good health for both of us. That that would be my hope for the future. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. There was one thing I forgot. I've left Linda out of this far too much. She's she's more than 50% of, of the two, right? Okay? <laughs> more than. She threw, she flew with Aerial Medical Service here for three and a half years, right? Mm -hmm. She's the only nurse in the Northern Territory to go tree lopping at 1.30 in the morning in the fog at Gallowinku Airport where they struck the trees in a Nomad aircraft. Both engines went out. The pilot managed to pull the nose up and kickstart the left-hand engine again. The right-hand engine flamed out. They limped back to Gove Airport at 150 feet above the sea in case they had to ditch. And she survived and so did the pilot. Oh and God. it's the only recorded tree lopping that people survived. And she's the only RN in Air Med that ever did it. And when we went out to the airport to have a look at the plane, the next day in broad daylight, she walked in, she took one look at the plane and she sat down on her bum in the hangar because she got such a shock, she almost fainted. She sat, sat down because she started to shake with the damage to the tail and the tree branches hanging out of the back of the motor on the right-hand side was amazing. Wow. And that's, that was part of her contribution. Yeah. Oh, my God, that's insane. I'm a nervous flyer, Ivor. I do not want to hear that. <laughs> oh, I could have told you another one, but I no, won't. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be kind. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, it's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> yeah. We've been chatting for well over an hour now, but, yeah, thank you so much. And uh, thank you. You've got an amazing story. <laughs> That was episode 25 of the podcast. 
I know we've had a little break recently, but there have been some exciting things brewing. This little podcast was shortlisted as a finalist for both the CBAA Awards and the NT Media Awards. I'm absolutely chuffed. I have to say a huge thank you to everyone who has come on to share their story so far. There are just so many incredible and inspiring characters in this region. I've had an awesome time working on this project. Massive thank you to GovFM. And last, but certainly not least, thank you guys for listening. Cheers to anyone who has rated or left a review on the podcast. You're all absolute legends. We still have two episodes left before the end of season one. They'll be coming your way very, very shortly. But for now, take it easy. My name's Monica O'Hanlon, and that was Northeast Arnhem Land with Mon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 